So before I begin, I need to say that uh, since we're talking about evangelism today, my studies were very personally convicting, and everything that I will be saying uh, will be just as applicable to me as it is to you. And so, lest I be hypocritical in, in the preaching, I must say everything in full agreement with one pastor who once said, that everything he preached, he preached with one finger pointing towards you and three pointing back at himself. So that's, with that in mind, let's open up to Psalm 96. And if you will, read verses 2 through 3 with me. The author writes, Sing to the Lord and praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations and his marvelous deeds among all people. The psalmist here is exhorting his reader to evangelize to share the gospel and proclaim its salvation day after day. And as it says in verse 3, to declare his glory and his marvelous deeds among all peoples. That is what he is calling the reader to do. His motive for doing so, he states in verse 4. He says, For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. His motive for evangelism, his primary motive, is the greatness of God. That is what compels him to evangelize, to share the gospel, and declare his glorious deeds is his greatness. And so that's where we will start this morning. And it's a glorious place to start because God is truly exceedingly great. And he has revealed his greatness to us, many of his great attributes to us, through everything he has created for the world, um, through the universe, everything that he has made, the material realm. But primarily he reveals his nature to us through scripture, through his word. And what he has revealed to us is that he is exceedingly great and that all of his attributes leave us with no other conclusion other than that this God is the single most praiseworthy being of all. That is the only conclusion we are left with. But the first attribute we must recognize in thinking about God's character is that he is by nature incomprehensible. That is, he is not able to be fully understood nor can he be known fully by anybody other than himself. He's fundamentally mysterious, and he cannot be fully comprehended by anybody. He is the only one who can. He is holy, incorruptible, completely pure, undefiled by sin, and totally separated from it, perfect in all of his ways. He is everlasting. He always has existed. He always will exist. He is eternal in nature. And he is infinite, immense in proportion, and the depth of his character and all of his attributes are unsearchable. He is also transcendent, not bound to person or place or time. He he surpasses all of the temporal limitations that we face every day in our lives. He transcends, he is eternal, and he is infinite. He is also unchanging and impassable. He does not change. He is constant, the same yesterday, today, and tomorrow. He is perfectly self-controlled, not overwhelmed by emotion, nor is his mind changed or convinced in any way by anyone. He is also free, the only totally free being in the universe who cannot be influenced or persuaded in any way. That goes along with his impassibility. He can decide to do whatever he wants, and then he also has all power and all might to complete whatever he wants. All he has to do is speak. His decrees are authoritative and causal. They have effect and they have power. When he speaks, it happens. 
He is all-wise, and he is all-knowing. There's nothing that he does not know. He is aware of every single conversation that is taking place in this world right now. He knows all of your thoughts. He knows all of your desires. He knows everything that you have done and everything that you will do. And he is cognizant of everything that has happened in history, including right now and everything that will happen at this very moment. His all-knowingness is is absolutely mind-blowing, and he is absolutely all-wise as well, in that he never makes any decision other than that which is absolutely best to make. No foolishness, absolute perfection in wisdom. He is also self-sufficient. Everything he needs to exist, he exists within himself. He is triune, holy, three in one, three unique persons, but one God, same in their essence and yet distinct in their ministry. He is everything that he needs to exist is within himself. He is self-sufficient entirely, yet he is also spiritual and immaterial. He is not bound by the physical realm in any way. He is invisible, supernatural, not natural. He is um, metaphysical and not physical. He is spiritual in, in, his, in his nature and his character. He is truth, and everything he says, he speaks with absolutely perfect veracity. And his word His word is the very foundation of all of our knowledge, and the foundation of his glorious word is himself. He himself is truth, and he is sovereign over everything in this world, providential over all things. Nothing happens outside of his sovereign hand, from the movement of the smallest molecules to the largest galaxies. He reigns from his throne with authoritative providence and is in absolute control. He is also revealed that he is good and that he is righteous, that he is a loving God. In fact, he even says that he is love. And what, what love hath any man greater than this, that he should lay down his life for his friends? Yet God did not only lay down his life for his friends, he laid down his life for his enemies. He is love, and he is also faithful. He is merciful, and he is gracious. He acts in favor towards men, completely on an unmerited basis. He is kind and tender-hearted, yet he is also perfectly just, and he always must maintain his justice. Every verdict he renders is absolutely perfect and is exactly what it deserves. He is also, he's also a wrathful God who has fiery indignation every day. And he is jealous, zealous for those he is in covenant with as a man is for his wife. This God... He is also creative, and we behold his creative ingenuity every day. His glorious engineering of the world and of us, we behold and we see his incredible intelligence in everything he has made. He is supreme above all other beings. There is nobody above him, and there is nobody like him. He is matchless in every single way. No one is comparable to him. He is perfectly unique. There is no one else like him. This is, this is what God has revealed himself to be to us. These are some of his attributes. He is absolutely the single most praiseworthy being of all. And this is the very God that we have sinned against. This is the one who, whose law we have broken whom we have rebelled, 
acted in hatred towards, and even tortured and murderously crucified. It's this God. The response to God's greatness should be worship and praise and adoration. That is how we were intended to respond to it at creation. That is how Adam responded to it. And it is intrinsic to the human design, for we were made for a relationship with God, beholding his glory, fellowshipping with him in his presence, and reflecting his glory back to him, responding in worship. But we cannot respond like that now. It is impossible for us to. And that is because we have been separated by God because of our sin. Let me read to you from Isaiah Chapter 59, verse 2, it says, But your iniquities have separated you from God, and your sins have hidden his face from you, so that he will not hear. Right worship is impossible apart from right relationship with God. And because we have sinned against him and have separated ourselves from his presence, we have severed our relationship with him, it is impossible for us to respond in right worship to his greatness. And these crimes are of infinite proportion. We can begin to see a little bit clearer the utterly sinfulness of our sin because we can see who our sin is against. It is against the most excellence, the great living God of the universe. Now another response is fear. And it is depicted in this passage in Psalm 96. If you will, verse 4 says, He is to be feared above all gods, For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Now, fear is is a right response to God's glory for all men. Even if you are saved and you're in Christ, fear is still a right response because of his terrible beauty and his awesome power and might. And as it says in verse 6, his splendor and majesty and strength and glory in his sanctuary. The sheer weightiness of him is a worthy cause for all men to have fear in him. And as, as C.S. Lewis said about the lion Aslan in his Chronicles of Narnia, he is, he is not a tame lion. God is not a tame God. And so all men have perfectly just cause to fear him, and they should. Yet for the unjustified sinner, the fear of God has additional components, which are horrifying. Because not only... Do they fear him for all of the reasons that all men should? But they also fear his condemnation. Look with me in verse 10. He says, Say among the nations, the Lord reigns. The world is firmly established. It cannot be moved. He will judge the peoples with equity. And in verse 13, he says, They will sing before the Lord, for he comes. He comes to judge the earth, and he will judge the world in righteousness and the peoples in his truth. Because this God lives, there is absolutely no other possibility of any other worldview being correct, not even a slight chance. The implications of that truth are terrifying for somebody who has sinned against him. Because it means that your sin is actually a real offense. And it bears a real magnitude which is unfathomable. It is him we have sinned against and he promises that he will judge. He will come to judge the world. And unless we are found in him, we will be under his curse. 
He even says so. Let me read to you from Deuteronomy 27, verse 26. He says, Curses the man who does not uphold the words of his law by carrying them out. We have been unfaithful to his law and have not obeyed him. And we are justly under his curse. We have incurred his perfect holy wrath. And it's an absolutely terrifying thing because of the magnitude of the offense itself, which is infinite, because it is against an infinite God, the punishment is infinite, everlasting in its duration, but also infinite in its magnitude. And God will judge. He is faithful to do what he says. And he says it many, many times, warning us, yet he patiently endures us for our lives here, hoping that all may come to repentance and belief in Christ and that they might be saved. The response for the sinner should be to recognize the magnitude of their sin. It should be a brokenness and a deep contrition and repentance over the sin, not just because of the punishment that they deserve, but because of the egregious nature of the sin itself, because of who it is against. Must realize that the God they have sinned against is the same God who holds them in his hand and maintains his life every second of the day, that the one who sustains your very existence is the one you have sinned against, and your wretchedness deserves nothing but his eternal punishment. He would be perfectly just to slaughter you right now if it were not for Christ. So the response to seeing their sin should be to seek a Savior. And God has, praise his name, made a glorious way of salvation so that we can be forgiven of our sins. And he has done it through the gospel, which is the same thing we are commanded to declare. The gospel, he came, graciously responded to our plight and our dire condition, himself became a man. That the almighty God who created the universe and everything in it, himself became a fetus and was sustained by an umbilical cord. He had hair and eyes and hands and feet. He became a man himself so that he could be your substitute, so that he could stand in your place and so that he could Take your stead in the face of God's wrath. Through his brutal suffering on the cross, he paid the full penalty of our sin. And then three days later, he rose from the dead. And in his resurrection, we too are raised to newness of life and can be reconciled to the God we have sinned against. Through his life and his death and his resurrection, we can be reconciled to God. Our relationship with him can be right again. And we are able to respond in right worship as we were made to. We can now behold his greatness and worship him and praise him and adore him rightly. We can see his terrible beauty and fear him without fear of condemnation. Our response to his glorious deliverance and sacrifice to save us should be an overwhelming gratitude, a gratitude of infinite magnitude. It should be an all-consuming love and a sincere faith and a genuine loyalty to our God as our King and as our Father 
as our friend, our brother, our savior, and our priest, and the lover of our souls. Our response to the gospel will be a life of worship. And this is the design nature of our relationship with him. We are to behold his beauty and his glory and respond in worship. We see in the beginning, Psalm 96, it says, Sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. New songs for new mercies which he pours forth every day. And his new mercies which he reveals to us demand new expressions of thanksgiving. Every day. For us who are in Christ, we experience his sanctifying power, the release from sins which bound us so tight, the eradication of vices which we thought so inherent and deep to our nature, we thought they would be permanent in our lives, but he sets us free from them. And not only that, but he produces spiritual fruit, namely love and joy and peace and patience and everything else you will find in Galatians chapter 5. The gospel is our strength every day, continually drawing us near to Christ, and it is through Christ, through the cross, we are able to relate to God by the power of his Holy Spirit. Every day we behold his common grace, by which he sustains a level of goodness in this world. He lavishes his blessings on us. We praise him. We have his hope and his promises and his presence. And you could go on and on. Either way, he pours out new mercies on us every day, and we respond with new songs of praise. We must not lose sight of the extreme magnitude of all of these things, the magnitude of God's greatness, the magnitude of sin, the magnitude of the punishment itself, and the magnitude of Christ and the gospel. And as a response, we live lives of worship. Verse, or please look with me at verse, let's see here. Uh, starting in verse 7. Ascribe to the Lord, O families of nations, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Ascribe to the Lord the glory to his name. Bring an offering and come into his courts. Our offering to God is our lives. We see this in Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore I urge you, brothers, in view of God's mercy, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and pleasing to God. This is your spiritual act of worship. So the response to God's greatness is worship through the gospel. But we can only respond in right relationship through Christ. And if we do not have Christ, and God commands us this very day to repent of our sins and put our faith in him to save us. And he does. He who is faithful will save us. For those of us who call on his name, he delivers. Thus, our life is a life of worship. And evangelism, as we will see, is an integral part of that. So part of our response to God's greatness is evangelism. It is, the, it is now proclaiming the good news of Christ and all of his marvelous deeds. Evangelism is a responsibility for the believer, for all believers, for all those who have been saved, not just missionaries and not just pastors or teachers, but for all those who God has saved by his grace. And it is his greatness that compels us to do so. It is his greatness that you must be gripped by. It must have a hold of your mind and it must have a hold of your heart. If it does, then it means it is absolutely, absolutely impossible for you to contain it. The news is literally 
inherently too good to keep to yourself. And if you can keep it to yourself, it's either not the right message or you haven't even scratched the most superficial of its depths, which is tragic. The message itself was never meant just for you either. It was certainly meant for you if you are in Christ, but it was also meant for everybody else. And this is a principle of God that we can see back in the very beginning in Genesis chapter 12 when he first makes his covenant with Abraham. His blessing with Abraham was not just meant for Abraham, but he was also to be a blessing to all the nations. The gospel you have received is not meant just for you. It is also meant to be for everybody else through you. It must captivate our minds and our hearts. And if we truly even grasp or taste it in the slightest, it will compel us with deep, genuine motives to proclaim it. My dad was talking last night about an example with my brother Brandon and the Seahawks winning the Super Bowl. He is compelled as a fan for his team to proclaim the victory of the Seahawks in the Super Bowl. It is far greater for those who have been saved by the gospel of Christ to proclaim it to everybody as well. Now, it is an essential part of our lives of worship. It is something that happens when? It happens every day, as it says in verse 2. Proclaim his salvation day after day. And where does it happen? Among all the nations and among all the peoples. And I like the King James Version even better. It says among the heathen. The Christian life is not meant to be lived completely in private. It is not something you hide. It is something that is in full public eye. It is something that is viewable by all. We are called to be testimonies to the light of Christ. And he even says in his parable, and I think it was in Luke chapter 10, that the light is not meant to be hidden under a bull. It's supposed to shine in the darkness. Now, why we share the gospel, why we evangelize, is, is fundamentally because of God's greatness. That is the primary motive, and all of the other motives for it are founded on our primary motivation, which is himself. But other motives can be derived from it, such as, well, the message itself. The message itself is itself, its very nature demands that it must be spread. What I mean by that is that lives depend on it, and God's glory is involved. And both of these two things matter eternally. It demands that it must be spread, and a major part of the message itself is the suffering of Christ. And if we have received the message, it will be our desire for the Lamb to receive his full reward for his sufferings. Thus, if you are a recipient of his grace, if you have believed the message, the message itself will demand that it must be spread and will compel you to do so. Another motive for sharing the gospel is our love for Christ. We love him because he first loved us through the gospel, and in that we respond in obedience to his commands. And there should be nothing we are not willing to do for him. As a man would do for a woman he loves, just about anything as rash and as bold or even publicly humiliating 
just to impress her or please her, so too should we for Christ accept infinitely greater. There should be nothing we are not willing to do to please Christ. Our love for him should compel us to obey his commands and share him with everyone. Not only that, but also our love for the lost should compel us. That the people do not know Christ are real people just like us with mothers and fathers and brothers and sisters, lives and struggles and jobs. And yet they too are separated from God and our hearts should break and we should desire the exact same restoration that has been brought to us through the gospel for them. Our love for Christ will compel us to love the world because we love Christ, we love what Christ loves, and we hate what Christ hates, and he loves the world, and so too will we. There should be nothing that we are not willing to do to share this message with the lost. There was a, 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 a fictional story for you. A priest and a prisoner, not just a prisoner, but a prisoner on death row was his last day alive, and the priest came to administer his evangelistic duties to him, he went through his, his little checklist and made sure that he said everything in the gospel presentation that he was supposed to, um, went through all the rituals and everything, and then after he was done, he asked the prisoner, do you want to repent and believe? And the prisoner, the man who's about to die, says to him, asks him, do you really believe everything you just said? And he says, of course I do. And he says, no, you don't. But he says, what makes you say that? And the prisoner says, if you truly believed what you said, you would crawl across this country on your hands and knees over broken glass just to share it with one person. There should be nothing that we are unwilling to do to share the gospel. And we don't even have to do that. We just have a problem opening our mouths. If we truly had a taste of the magnitude of the reality of heaven and of hell and of work of Christ, we would be willing to do absolutely anything to share this with even one person. Another motive or reason why we share the gospel is because it is our elected duty. That if God has chosen you to receive his grace and to be saved, it is your duty and obligation and responsibility to obey his commands and to share the gospel as well. He did not save you and pluck you out of this world and put you in a garden of Eden again. He saved you into a conflict. He saved you into a battle and into a war. And you are called to fight. And your God, King, and General Jesus Christ commands you to go and to share Many of you know the Great Commission, Matthew chapter 28, verses 19 through 20. Actually, starting in verse 18, he says, Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. This is his command to us. And it's not an option to disobey him. Disobedience is not optional. If we truly um, see, love, 
Christ, then this will not be just our duty. It will be our privilege and our desire as well. Another motive, I'll give you one more, is that evangelism is essential to our purpose in life. That is, our purpose in life is to glorify God. And the public proclamation and declaration of his marvelous deeds is a primary means by which we can glorify him and reflect him and his nature to both himself and to the world. Evangelism is inseparable from worship. And worship is what you were created to do. Thus, it is not only essential to your purpose in life, but because of that, it is also best for you. Uh, Let me read to you a verse from Philemon 6. Paul writes, I pray that you may be active in sharing your faith so that you will have a full understanding of every good thing we have in Christ. It is a blessing for you to share the gospel. It is certainly a responsibility of ours and a duty, but it is also essential to our purpose in life, and it is good for us. So we have these different motives. We have our love for Christ and our love for the world and the message itself, which demands that it must be spread. It is our elected duty to do so. It is essential to our purpose in life, and it is best for us. Yet all of these motives are founded on the primary motivation, which is God's greatness himself. And you can see it, too, if you work through a progression. If you say, why do I share the gospel with this person? Your answer would probably be something along the lines of, because I care about them. And why do you care about them? Because Why do you care about people? Because you want to glorify God. And why do you want to glorify God? Because he's worthy of it. And why is he worthy of it? Because he is great. His greatness is where it ends. It is the primary motivation for our evangelistic goals. Now, We struggle with evangelism. There are many problems that we have with it. And most of them are are fear issues. We lack fear of God. And we have a fear of man, which is inordinate. That is, we do not want to be disliked. We want to be liked. And this leads to us being ashamed to testify because it may harm our reputation and we may not be as as highly esteemed in the minds of men as we desire. So we fear man. We also lack a fear for man. We do not fear their just condemnation and the punishment that God promises he will carry out. We do not fear for them enough. And all wrong fear is correlated with not seeing reality clearly. There must be some sort of disillusionment happening. In other words, you cannot see man clearly and still fear him. Nor can you see God clearly and not fear him. And likewise, you cannot see the punishment that those without Christ face and not fear for them. You must not see it clearly in order to have a wrong fear. And there is a right fear and there is a wrong fear. I once, I once heard it said that fear will paralyze you more than being in a wheelchair. Wrong fear absolutely will paralyze you more than, a cripple, more than a crippling accident. But right fear will invigorate your soul and embolden you to accomplish the purposes that God has given you. 
wrong fear. I mean, the, the problem is, is one of placement. We have, mispla- we have misplaced our fear. If fear in the wrong things will hinder us, but fear in the right things, namely God and for them, will, is a worthy drive and motive to evangelize. So we have fear issues. There are some other issues that we have. I'm not going to spend a whole lot of time on. But one is certainly an inordinate desire for comfort. We desire comfort too much and in too many ways, which we shouldn't have. And it's not wrong to desire comfort, but if comfort is having any impact on your evangelistic call, then it has a wrong place in your life. Your desire for comfort cannot um, in any way infringe on your obedience to Christ. And if it does... And you must shut it out and put it back in its proper place. The irony is that the gospel is what provides the greatest comfort and joy and satisfaction and peace and happiness. Yet for a vain sense of comfort, we are willing to refrain from sharing it. Another problem is for some of us, our priorities are just so far off that the glorification of God is less of a priority in our lives than whatever else it may be, each of us, for each of us personally. Laziness is another issue. Some of us just don't want to exert the energy it takes to engage in evangelistic conversations with people and be a living testimony to the work of Christ. You go on about the problems that we have, but some of the most common excuses that we hear, uh, I'll only give you three. One is wisdom. People use wisdom as an excuse for not sharing the gospel. And I'll tell you that it's far more, it's, it's far more often wise to share the gospel than we think. Our wisdom must be based totally on Scripture And if it's based on anything else, we must examine it and test it in light of the word. The same goes for the excuse of waiting for an opportunity. Whatever idea we have of what an evangelistic opportunity is, I encourage you to examine it, to check your assumptions and what it is based on, and to examine them in light of Scripture. And if what your opportunity includes is not evidently biblical, give no hindrance to it. And one more, which is relatively, which is relatively common as well, is that you want, to re- you want to wait to build a relationship with the person. Ask yourself what it is that you consider a relationship substantial for evangelism. And if it is not in line with God's word, then shun it and put it out of your life. Give no credence to it. One fallacy, which I want to point out, is that it is possible not to communicate a message of any kind. That is false. We are at our core worshipers, and we are made to worship. Everyone is an evangelist. And if you are not actively sharing the gospel of Christ and being a testimony to it, you are being a testimony to something else. And you are sharing a gospel of another kind. 
The ninth commandment is often phrased as do not lie, but the original phraseology in Exodus is do not bear false testimony. If you're not bearing testimony to Christ, you are sharing a gospel of something else, and that is a horrible thought. The solution to our evangelistic issues is God himself. And all of our evangelistic issues are basically worship issues. And he himself is the solution to it. Knowing him is what will help us and cause us to overcome all of these obstacles which we have. We certainly are not lacking anything. We have everything we need. We have a spirit. We have the new self, which has the power to serve him and worship him rightly. We have his word. We have the gospel. We have each other. And he has given us the means of of grace to exercise our relationship with him and to know him more and to grow deeper with him. Namely, means of grace, Bible, Bible, his word to you, prayer, community, and meditation. And these are the means he has given us to draw near to himself. It is through his word that he speaks to you and it is through prayer that you speak to him. And the more you know him, the more you are changed by him. And it is growing deeper in our relationship with him which will bring about the sanctifying effects that will overcome our evangelistic obstacles. We must faithfully pursue God through these means. Not seeking him as a means to an end or using our relationship with him with the hope that it will um, help us to overcome the struggles that we have. We can't, he cannot be manipulated and we must not even dare to try. We must seek him for the purpose of seeking him. And the sanctification which will bring about the resolution to these issues which we desire will be a product of that. What I mean, one is that to build your greatest motivation for evangelism, which as articulated in Psalm 96 is the greatness of God, you must be more gripped by it. And that takes place by you knowing God more. The more you know him, and the more he reveals to you his greatness and his glory, the more you'll be captivated by it, infatuated with him, and his greatness and his glory will take a hold of you and demand everything. It's, it's, he's, not, he's not like a man where the more you know him, the more you find out the sinful little details of his life, and the more horrific he becomes. He is not like a man. The more that you know him, the more you find the goodness and the greatness that he is. It is a perpetual revelation of his goodness, nothing else. Knowing him more will humble you and kill your pride, destroy your selfishness, and compel you to share his greatness with others. Also, loving Christ more. Loving Christ more will help us to overcome the evangelistic issues because it actually is one of them, is our lack of love for Christ. But knowing him more will result in a greater love for him. Because the more you know Christ, the more you can't not love him. And it will be like like falling in love. The more that you know him, the more you will love him. 
So you want your love for Christ to increase, get in his word, hear him speak to you, and know him more. The same goes with loving the world more. The more you love Christ, the more you will love the world because all of your loves and your desires and your hates will be dictated by your soul love for Christ. So what Christ loves, you too will love. And he loves the lost and so will you. You will grow in your care for the lost the more you see the reality of their condition. And God reveals this to you through his word. So once again, faithfulness to being in his word is absolutely essential to growing in this faith. Fearing God more comes also by knowing him more. And an increased faith will also come through him making you more sure and certain of that which you do not see. And this he does through the means of grace as well. One of the things that evangelists lack, or people that struggle with evangelism lack, is faith. Faith in God's word, faith in the reality of hell, faith in the person of Christ, faith in the Holy Spirit and its power. We lack faith. And faith is an foundational element of the evangelist's mind and heart. And so if we are to grow in faith, God must increase our the insurity of these things, and he does through growing deeper in our relationship with him. One thing which is needed, which we may or may not have, is devotion to these means. That is that we cannot expect to grow unless we commit substantial amounts of time and energy and exert ourselves and discipline ourselves in these means. It is like, it is, it is comparable to a soldier who trains for war or an athlete who trains for the Olympics. That is the quantity of time we are to commit to training and growing in holiness and pursuing God. And there are no days off. It is an everyday pursuit of him. In overcoming our obstacles for evangelism, sanctification, that is the mortification of our sin and the growth in holiness, is an essential component of it. But we also must just do it. We must decide that it is right, determined to do it in covenant with ourselves, discipline ourselves to follow through. We cannot wait until all of our fear is gone or we feel like we love the world enough or we feel like we love Christ enough to obey his commands. We must share the gospel whether we are comfortable doing it or not, whether we feel competent doing it or not. And God is glorified in us obeying him in this manner through the fear and through the struggles. He is glorified in our obedience even in the midst of the obstacles which we face. So discipline and just doing it is necessary. And not only that, but he, he promises that you can. In 1 Corinthians 
or 2 Corinthians, he says that there will be no temptation that will come to you that you cannot handle. You will be able to stand up against it in Christ. You absolutely can do what he has called you to do. So then the call is to see his greatness and to respond with worship and be compelled to share the gospel with the lost. And unless we are faithful to this command, the church, our church, will not grow the way it is ought to. Apart from us being faithful to sharing the gospel with the lost, God's church will not grow the way he wants it to. So, we have such limited time. We don't know when we're going to die. We don't know when others are going to die. We don't know when Christ is going to come again. There should be a sense of urgency in bringing this news to the lost. And we only have one chance to fight for Christ, and it is this one. We should bring the gospel with sincerity and love and confidence because we know it is absolutely the truth and preach it joyly, joyfully, with gratitude and love in our hearts for what Christ has done for us. He says that today is the day of salvation. That today is the day he desires men to repent and believe and put their faith in him. We cannot wait or tarry in this matter. We must be faithful to his command and obey him today and every day. And with that, I'll I'll close by reading this Psalm 96 again, verses 2 through 5. Psalmist writes, Sing to the Lord and praise his name. Proclaim his salvation day after day. Declare his glory among the nations, his marvelous deeds among all peoples. For great is the Lord and most worthy of praise. He is to be feared above all gods. For all the gods of the nations are idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and glory are in his sanctuary. Let's pray together. Please, Father, compel us to share the gospel rightly and reveal to us the greatness of your character and your nature. Lord, produce in us all of the right motivations to do so. Increase our love for Christ and our love for the world and our faith. And please glorify yourself in helping us and causing us to obey you even in the midst of the obstacles. Grow us together as a church. Help us to draw near to one another and to unite in this matter to further advance your kingdom in the time that we have left here. We ask all of this for your glory and by the power of Christ which we pray to you and have been reconciled to you. By your spirit, we ask these things and pray that they are in accordance with your will. Amen.